Of all the figures who fought in World War I, T.E. Lawrence has endured as the single most famous combatant. Despite enduring fame, Lawrence of Arabia has remained a controversial and enigmatic figure. Thanks to author Michael Corda's new biography, however, the man now emerges from the legend with a new level of clarity. The book is Hero, the Life and Legend of Lawrence of Arabia. Said the New York Times, the strength of Hero lies in its ability to analyze Lawrence's accomplishments and to add something meaningful to a larger body of lore. Mr. Corda makes himself a credible authority on some of the most egregious misconceptions that surround Lawrence's story. Michael Corda is a best-selling author whose prior works include Ike, Charmed Lives, and Journeys to a Revolution. He is Editor-in-Chief Emeritus at Simon & Schuster. This correspondent was intrigued when our friends at Newman Communication informed us Mr. Corda was available to speak with us. I was knocked out by the fascinating and in some respects new portrait of Lawrence that emerges from the pages of Hero. Thus, I'm pleased to be able to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Michael Corda. Well, thank you very much. Can I, can I start with the T.E. The Lawrence that emerges from David Lean's film, Lawrence of Arabia is surely regarded as the greatest epic ever made. It uh, is in the top tier of just about every significant list of great films anyone has ever compiled. Peter O'Toole's Screen Lawrence defined the man for a couple of generations of film lovers, but how would you say the real Lawrence compares to the screen version? Well, the first thing to be said is that Lawrence is only 5'5 five five inches tall and Peter O'Toole is 6'2". Yeah. <laughs> There's an enormous difference in height. But I think that David Lee, whom I knew, liked enormously, did a wonderful job. I agree that it's probably the best epic film ever made, and that there's really nothing that I know of in film history that quite equals it for scope and ambition and everything else. It's a wonderful film, and I could see it over and over again. How much does it differ from Lawrence? Well, to begin with, when Lawrence came to the Middle East in 1916, become an intelligence officer in Cairo for the British Army. Lawrence already knew Arabic and spoke it quite fluently uh, and had already spent a large amount of time both as an undergraduate on vacations and as an archaeologist after he graduated from Oxford in the Middle East, particularly Syria and what is now Lebanon and Palestine. Uh, so Lawrence was already a, a person who knew the Middle East um, and uh, knew a lot about it. Secondly, and I think this is an important point, it works for the film in terms of portraying Lawrence to show him as being a bumbling amateur who kind of stumbles into um, the whole idea of going out to find the Arab army and make contact with them. But in fact, the real Lawrence was, first of all, an inordinately shrewd man, and secondly, uh, an enormously charming and well-connected one, despite the fact that he was illegitimate. Uh, so in that sense, the introduction to Lawrence in David Lean's film is misleading, though so it works in terms of the film. Any filmmaker would have done the same thing and made the same decision. The other big issue that's a mistake in the film, uh, once again, it works for the film, is that towards the end of the film, when Lawrence um, is close to Damascus and says he, to his Arabs, take no prisoners, and um, in effect uh, has them slaughter the remnant of the retreating Turkish army, um, it leaves out a crucial scene, which is that the Arabs come across the, the Tapas' village 
post of Damascus where the Turks have murdered every man, woman, and children in the most disgusting and appalling ways. Mm -hmm. And they are so infuriated by this that they are determined to take no Turkish prisoners and there's nothing that Lawrence can do to stop them. Um, that's a very big difference between Lawrence in the film and Lawrence in real life. But with those two exceptions, I would stay, say that it stays, stays quite close to the truth. Well, biographies of Lawrence have him quite disgusted with himself for misleading the Arabs and thinking they were fighting for their freedom against the Ottoman Turks when he knew that the powers that be had no intention of creating a great Arab nation after the war. Um, your, your book casts a rather more optimistic light on his efforts to establish Arab nations. He, in fact, had Winston Churchill's ear, and he helped place Arab monarchs um, on the countries we know today as Jordan and Iraq. I, so you've taken a rather sunnier view of this, this, this phase of his life in your book. Well, it's not so much sunnier, I think. Uh, to put it in perspective, the notion that the Middle East was going to be carved up between the British and the French if, in fact, um, the, the Ottoman Empire was defeated um, was, was no secret. Uh, uh, Lawrence knew of it, even if he did not know the exact terms of the Sykes-Picot Agreement, he certainly knew of the Sykes-Picot Agreement. So for that, that it's Prince Faisal and, 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 and King Hussein. So this was not a, um, uh, a, a huge secret. Um, the, there, there are two very important aspects to that. One is that the defeat of the Ottoman Empire was above all brought about um, by the British military effort in the Middle East. Um, now, the Arab army and the Arab revolt had a huge role to play in that, but they would not have defeated the Turkish Empire without Allenby's advance up the Mediterranean coast and his taking of Gaza. Um, and so the British had, like it or not, uh, a role to play in the Middle East, and wanted one, and it never, never disguised that they expected to have one. Uh, the, the second is that I emphasize very strongly Lawrence's hope that if he could get the Arab army to Damascus before the British reached there, that he could declare an independent Arab nation with Faisal as the king, and get it instituted in the eyes of world of opinion so firmly that the Allies would not be able to dissolve or, on, or deconstruct it at the peace conference. Now, there he was being optimistic. Um, he attempted to do just that, uh, and the fact of the matter is that he failed, even though he tried very hard in 1919 at the peace conference and was undeniably the star of the peace conference, the only person for whom the heads of state uh, among them, Tim so um, and Woodrow Wilson um, stood and applauded him as this little figure in white after his presentation in Arabic and then English and then flawless French. Uh, they applauded him as they did no other person at the peace conference, but they did not do what he had hoped they would do. However, he knew that it was a gamble. There was never any doubt in his mind that the British and the French would reach for territory. Well, there seems to be universal agreement that Lawrence had a great military mind, but his ability to convert good PR into actual influence seems equally remarkable. Uh, again and again, as you point out in the book, he used his image 
as one who gets things done in, in colorful Arab clothing, no less, to gain influence over strategy in, in the war and later in, in politics. He really had a genius for influencing others to do things the way he suggested by dazzling with, with, his, with his image. Oh, I think so. Lawrence had a very strong and deep-seated understanding of the effect of his image on people. Uh, that's not to say that, that I think he was particularly vain uh, or that he enjoyed his public image all that much. Um, uh, he was very eager to give it up as soon as he could, but he absolutely understood the importance of image. And from the very beginning, even before he put on the Arab clothing, uh, he had the attention and the, uh, the respect of people way up the British political and military chain. I mean, even when he was a second lieutenant in Cairo and had not even gone to what is now Saudi Arabia, uh, his dispatches and reports on the Turkish army and on, and on intelligence um, from Turkish deserters uh, were read all the way up to the chief of the imperial general staff um, and to the foreign office in London and, and played a significant role in British decision-making. So he, Lawrence is, is, even before he becomes this dazzling public figure and this enormous hero on a scale that really no other person in the First World War achieved, uh, he already had the, the respect and attention of, 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 of people who mattered. Well, uh, you note and publish in the book some, some, uh, some maps that he made. He was a competent map maker, and you've suggested that uh, you know, if we'd followed what he'd hoped— we would do in redrawing the lines of the Ottoman Empire, the region would be, that whole Middle East would be a lot stabler today than it is. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, there are two uh, major things that Lawrence attempted to achieve, and in which he failed, but which would have made an enormous difference to the Middle East. One was that he managed to get Heim Weizmann, the head of the World Zionist Organization, and Emir Faisal, the leader of the Arab Revolt, uh, in 1918 to sit down and sign a draft uh, constitution he had written for the establishment of a, an independent Palestine with a joint Arab Zionist government, uh, equally shared power, uh, but with the right of immigration um, for Jews that would extend up to 5.5 or 6 million people. Now, uh, that's roughly the size of, in fact, it's more than the Jewish population of Israel now, and would, if it had been instituted by the Allies, have allowed there to be a place where the European Jews could have escaped to um, in the 1930s, once the, once the Nazis came to power. So that, that's a very significant thing, and I, 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 I actually quote that document in full in my book, because it's amazing. It is a solution to the Palestinian problem, which would have spared us so much bloodshed and so many problems, not just from 1948 on, but from 1933 on, and would have dramatically changed the nature of the Middle East. His other idea, that of a large Arab state going from the Mediterranean to the Persian Gulf and including the oil wealth of the uh, small uh, independent shakedoms on the Persian Gulf, would also have changed the Middle East very considerably because it would have spread, and deliberately uh, so, would have spread the oil wealth that's now narrowly held 
in the hands of a very small number of people to the larger Arab population in Egypt and Syria and places like that. And therefore, the whole Middle East would have looked dramatically differently and would have arrived perhaps at something like the Arab Spring, oh, 40, 50, 60 years, 70 years before it happened and without the chaos and the confusion and the bloodshed. So Lawrence's plan for the Middle East seems to me extraordinarily sophisticated and very much uh, more advanced than anything we've managed to achieve and should, I think, be paid much more attention to. Uh, The clues to solving a lot of our problems in the Middle East can be found in reading Lawrence, frankly. Well, much has been made of the man's eccentricities. He loathed actual physical contact with others. Um, But his decision to walk away from fame and power in the 1920s seems to have baffled many historians. The portrait that you paint of his behavior, Mr. Corda, makes his actions seem far more understandable than previously, I think. Um, In an era of motion pictures and PR innovations, Lawrence faced the kind of fame uh, that um, would lead to the the paparazzi we were familiar with today. But before his time, there was no such thing. so I think you make it much more understandable on how he was withdrawing from that sort of level of fame. Of course, the fame was one that he reached for and momentarily enjoyed. Lawrence was very conscious of his own fame and, and, and had enough vanity to be pleased with it and also to know how to use it. On the other hand, it got out of control after the war when he became perhaps the most significant hero in the English-speaking world of the First World War. And, and when Lowell Thomas, in 1920, uh, brought the motion picture film and the still photographs he made of Lawrence in Arabia back to the United States and turned it into a, a show, the first multimedia show in, in history, uh, and opened it uh, in New York, uh, the, the, the audiences were so big that it had to be transferred to Madison Square Garden. Uh, and Lawrence's photograph, blown up to life-size, was in the window of every department store on Fifth Avenue. This is in 1920, when Lawrence was still in the Middle East and had no idea that any of this was happening. So you have to also picture that Lawrence's fame is like a steamroller, except that it's moving faster than a steamroller, rushing towards it without his knowing it. Uh, and when Lowell Thomas brought with Lawrence in Arabia, from New York um, to the United Kingdom at the invitation of King George V. Uh, that fame in, in, in England and throughout the British Commonwealth became enormous. I mean, between 1921 and 1923, with Lawrence in Arabia performed in New York, throughout Canada, uh, in almost every big city in England. It actually moved to Covent Garden the first time a film had ever been shown in Covent Garden because the crowds were so enormous and the police had to be called out uh, because of the number of people who wanted to get tickets. It went to Australia, it went to New Zealand, all over the English-speaking world. Lawrence's fame was indescribably greater than that of any other living person in his time. Uh, This really was more than Lawrence was able to deal with. Uh, it, It would be a challenge even to somebody less complicated than Lawrence, but to Lawrence it was, on the one hand, fascinating, and on the other hand, um, bewildering and and frightening. Your book points out that his skills as a writer were formidable, not just for Seven Pillars of Wisdom and the shorter Revolt in the Desert, but even in his military dispatches, letters that he wrote, and an instruction manual that he wrote for the military. 
Um, he even wrote a still-in-print translation of Homer's Odyssey. So I ask, as an editor, is this, is this thing this impressed you the most about him? And, and if not, what does? Well, no, it's not a question what impresses me the most about him. Lawrence is always a superlative writer, and even as an undergraduate, his essays and his, his, his thesis um, on Crusader castles, uh, they, his, his thesis was so great that the examiners at Oxford gave a black tie dinner to celebrate his first when he won it because it was such a, an enormous uh, and, and exciting achievement. Uh, so he always wrote wonderfly well, and when he sat out to write Seven Pillars of Wisdom, he wrote what is arguably the greatest book about war in the English language. Um, his, his, his translation of the Odyssey is still in print and very popular, and he wrote it while sitting on his bed, or his cot rather, or his bunk, um, as an airman in, uh, in India in the, the 1920s, um, after he joined the Royal Air Force under an assumed name to escape from his own fame. I think also his writing had a very dramatic effect on, on his, 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 his political and his military life. Uh, his dispatches were wonderfully readable. Um, they're perfectly truthful. They're very factual, but they're marvelously written. Uh, so, yes, he is the unusual combination of a gifted writer, a extremely uh, intelligent, intellectual, um, and academic, um, and a brilliant man of action. Uh, those three things are very seldom combined in one person's life, particularly in such a short life. Well, I know we're up against it on time, Mr. Corda, but I'd like to ask in closing, among all the, the, the remarkable tales that surround Lawrence, do you have a particular favorite story? Well, I've always liked the fact, more than almost anything else about Lawrence, that when he took Aqaba, um, his first great victory, and the one that made him internationally famous overnight, uh, taking it from the rear where it was undefended, um, and moved on to Cairo to report it, because there was no other way of bringing the news. The Arabs had destroyed the radio at Aqaba, so there was nothing Lawrence could do except ride across the Sinai Desert, uh, across the Suez Canal, and go to Cairo to announce it himself. That in his first meeting with General Allenby, uh, he turns up barefoot and in his stained Arab robes, having ridden all the way from Aqaba in what is now Saudi Arabia, across the Sinai to Cairo. And Allenby simply looks at it in amazement, and Lawrence tells him what he has done and what he needs, and Alan B. simply says, I will do my best for you. It's a wonderful line. But the thought of Lawrence turning up in Cairo, this tiny man um, surrounded by enormous people, and Alan B. was huge, he was well over six foot uh, and broad and a stickler for military perfection, and himself you know, an object of gleaming leather and shining brass buttons and red flashes and gold as a, as, as a full general. And yet, here standing before him is this unknown five-foot-five object with bare feet in white, stained white robes, and yet Allenby recognizes him immediately as a, a soldier and as a military figure um, and has no hesitation in accepting Lawrence on Lawrence's own terms. I think that's very typical of the man. 
The book is Hero, The Life and Legend of Lawrence of Arabia. We've been speaking with author Michael Corda about this remarkably uh, excellent book. I can't recommend it highly enough, and I want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us, Mr. Corda. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.